0: I have always been really intimidated by labels, feeling like I have to assign myself a label. And if I don't, then I don't belong at the table. I just rhymed with that meaning, to. I hate myself. Um,
1: <laughs> you know, I've postponed this for, what, over two years now?
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we've been talking about it since we met. Why don't you tell the listeners your name, pronouns, uh, anything else, like where you live, how old you are, if you want. And then I guess we can start by telling how we met.
1: Sure. Yeah, I'm Teddy. I use Z or they pronouns. Uh, Z pronouns are like neo pronouns. So like, it's always a whole conversation on how to explain it. But if you haven't heard of neo pronouns, you should look it up.
0: Um, And I have to be honest, Teddy, I have not.
1: Okay. Then I'll, I'll explain in a moment. Okay. Um, <laughs> Sorry, your work is going to be cut out for you today. <laughs> it's okay. I'm, I'm prepared. And I'm 27. And I'm currently in Portland, Oregon.
0: I love Portland. How long have you lived there?
1: <laughs> I never know how to answer that question. Because I originally came to Portland like four or five years ago. But I move around so much that I haven't had like a home base for a while.
0: I feel that. So let's back up a little bit. Let's make this easy. Let's just talk about where you were at when we met, which was 2021 in the Seattle area in eating disorder treatment. Yes. You listened to the episode with Andrew, right? I did. Yeah. So we were in treatment with Andrew. So if y'all haven't heard that episode, go back and listen. Teddy was along for the ride.
1: Yeah, I was there for the retainer story and everything. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
0: that's all you need to know.
1: Mm -hmm. So um, what
0: led you to that treatment center that particular time? We're just going to jump right in.
1: Okay. To be honest, I feel like parts of myself have like completely blacked out that entire experience because my eating disorder was always an issue ever since I was a kid. And it just like continued to progress and progress and I have other, you know, like addiction stuff that I was dealing with too. So I think it all just kind of came to a point where like that was my first time going to residential um, for treatment. And it was, I think like the last time, which was probably a few years prior, they wanted me to go to res and I was like, nope, not happening. I don't have like, I'm not that bad. Hmm. Um, So I did PHP for two months and then kind of like... Cruised for like two months of like recovery and then went right back into it. But I have a history of like when I go back to things that are self destructive, I go zero to a hundred and make it really bad. Oh, yeah, same. Yeah. (laughs) So the events leading up to the treatment that time, um, it was COVID. So everything was just very difficult to get into. Um, So like my levels were really bad. My behaviors were off the charts. um, And my doctor was concerned obviously and I was like okay maybe I can like rearrange my life and make this happen and I did it was washington so I made the little trek up there and my car was in a storage unit and it was a whole thing
0: I remember yeah. the car like through this whole process you were kind of updating us and it was like a whole situation
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah but yeah. but I'm skipping ahead a little bit
1: That's good <laughs> but
0: <laughs> that'll happen a lot I feel like we're, we're just going to bounce around. That's fine. That's preferred, to be honest. TBH. So you said you made the decision to change your life. Was was that like a lightning bolt moment? Or did it kind of happen over
1: time? Yeah, that's a great question. I feel like I have like little moments of my life where I'm like, okay, things are like really not okay. And like, it's up to me to like change these things. Um, if I so choose to. And I think at that point, I just had... I think my people-pleasing, was really what got me into treatment Yeah, I don't think I wanted to go like alone, you know, by myself until I got there and I was like, okay, like the first week was awful, but then I finally like settled in.
0: You were so like scared from my perspective. Was that accurate?
1: Yeah, I think, I don't know. I was really nervous to just like interact with others who had like really bad eating disorders as well. And then it was more of like the hospital scene, too. So I was like, ooh, I don't know if I'm like cut out for this.
0: You know what's funny? Yeah. When you yeah. said with others who had really bad eating disorders as well, the first thought I had was, oh, mine wasn't that bad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like that's such a common thread in all the conversations that we have on this podcast and just in life is like no one feels like they're bad enough to be there. I mean, that's just what it seems like, you know. Right. Anyway, I just thought that was interesting. So you got there and I was like there for a day or two when you got there. And Andrew was like the other new patient. So the three of us like kind of got there at the same time. And I was just Mm -hmm. relieved when you got there because like there was another new person. And I saw you like doing a lot of art and reading a lot. And so I kind of made up in my mind that I was going to be your friend. (laughs) I don't remember like how it happened exactly. I know that you were kind of slow to open up and slow to engage, would you say?
1: Definitely. I think more so because I was an introvert and like there were lots of other personalities who, you know, were very like into like sharing in all the groups and stuff. And I was more of a, I'm going to listen. This is how I learn. I'm going to listen. And then if I absolutely have to, like I'll share something about myself but definitely more closed off at first until I like started to get to know people. And if I remember correctly, like you used to like wake up really early. And I think I was up early too. And that's kind of how it. it Yeah,
0: I used to go out into the common room before breakfast and like journal or whatever. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you did too.
1: Yeah, I was doing my watercolor stripe painting. Oh,
0: yeah. Do you still do that? I do. Uh, I, we could just talk about art for this whole episode, but we need to stay focused. Okay. Talk about those first few days, like, it was your first time in residential, and that is a huge adjustment, and it was a, yeah. it was like, you weren't from Seattle, so you weren't even local to the area.
1: It was definitely scary um, to, like, walk into a place, not know anybody first off, and then be in a completely new environment. With lots of rules and requirements and things like that. I think specifically, like, the first few days were really difficult because I wasn't treated the greatest in terms of, like, gender stuff and, like, accessibility and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know Mm -hmm. if I remember telling you this or not, but I think it was, like, day four or five until I learned that, like, they had a gender-neutral bathroom that I could use. Yeah, I remember that. And it was just, like, so... I don't know. My therapist at the time was like, "Yeah, that's traumatizing because for me, right, I was assigned a female at birth, and so like I was in like the women's room every single morning, you know, doing the routine that we had to do, and it just like felt so uncomfortable." Well, yeah, you have to like, wear
0: like those thin 100. gowns and like dress, step on the scale in front of everybody, and like the showers are mm-hmm. communal, and it's just like, yeah, it's it's uncomfortable at the least.
1: Yeah, and then throw in the gender stuff where I was like, I don't identify as a female or a woman so it just like felt kind of like wrong to like be in there in the first place but also like it didn't affirm anything of my gender
0: so so let's back up a bit you were going to explain the the pronouns to me yes and i want to talk about like your gender identity like at the time when you went into treatment and like what that journey looked like in in your earlier years i guess
1: yeah sure so I never really know how to explain certain things because everybody explains it differently. So, like, I don't have a degree in this. For me, like, neopronouns are a set of pronouns that are outside of, like, the binary, like, male or female that, like, we are grown up in society as knowing. And then the non-binary term of they-them came into play. And has been a thing for quite a long time, mm-hmm. um, but from there, I'm pretty sure I don't know how it originated. Neo pronouns were formed, and it's just kind of a group of pronouns that are outside of like the typical male, female, binary that you can use to like feel more comfortable with yourself. And there are so many different neo pronouns out there that I'm still even learning some of them. But mine are Z Zer. So it's very similar to they, them, theirs. But for me, like, it feels a little more masculine leading. And it just, like, works better, I think. Like, when people say, oh, yeah, Teddy, Z is really cool. And I'm like, yeah, I'm cool. Hell yeah. So... That's kind of how you would like use it in a sentence. But I also have heard of
0: people.
1: Yeah. I, I don't want to force people.
0: you to like educate everyone like the, for this entire episode. Like that's not the point. I just, yeah, I, I really appreciate you explaining that.
1: Yeah, I'll do my best. And like other people will use, there's so many out there. I've heard of like star, stars, star self, like E-M airs. So yeah, if you're a person listening and you're like, I don't feel like I'm a she, her or a he, him. Or are they them? There are other options out there.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful. So when you went to treatment, though, like what pronouns were you using at the time? And like, what did you consider your gender identity?
1: Yeah, um, non-binary. So I mean, the way I explain that is like, I'm just me. I'm a person. I don't really feel in alignment of like at that time, I was like, I don't feel in alignment with like being a girl or a boy. I'm just me. I'm a person. And that's how like I would explain it to people. And I was using they, them pronouns.
0: How long have you had you been feeling like that and been articulating that?
1: I think like growing up, I always knew like I was not like a girl, but I didn't realize that like non-binary was a thing until I was early 20s, maybe 20, 21 years old. Um, When I was at a roller derby competition and there was a skater who had they, them pronouns on their helmet and they're like, I'm non-binary and I was like, what does that mean? And like, they kind of explained it and I was like, wait, that's me. There's a name for it. That's so cool. I'm pretty sure there was someone in high school, like way back when, but I was... Under so many drugs and stuff that, like, it didn't connect that they were also non binary. I'm sure that, like, I knew it existed, but, like, it was in that moment that I was like, this is me. And then I told two people that I met at that tournament and they instantly started using it and I felt a million times better. And I was like, this feels right. And I've been using it ever since.
0: Obviously, you have a history of substance abuse, as do I. We've bonded over it. I could talk about it forever. But, you mm-hmm. know, I w- I'm curious about, like, what led you to that in the first place like i I know you have kind of a rocky relationship with your your family
1: okay so (laughs) i feel like my story is long so i'm going to try to shorten it as briefly as possible so i was adopted grew up in an orphanage like the first year and a half of my life and then was adopted and moved to new york upstate not the city and my dad was an alcoholic and i say was i mean he still is but he's sober now and my mom, she had her struggles and wasn't the kindest human growing up. And I accidentally took my first drink at seven. There was like vodka in scrape <laughs> vodka and pickles. Um, there's, <laughs> really? <laughs> It it was, yeah, so there was vodka in, like, a water bottle, and I was like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm thirsty, I'm going to have some water, and I, that was my first drink, and I spit it out in the sink, and was like, this is disgusting, this doesn't taste like water, <sighs> and then I remember my parents got in, like, a huge bite, and, like, that would happen, you know, there was lots of, like, arguments, and there was some, like, I don't know, pushing and like threatening knives and all, all the fun trauma stuff. Sorry, trigger warning. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it was like rocky um, growing up and my first drink was at seven. And then I was like, I'm never doing that again. And then around eight, my parents would throw parties for all of their friends. My parents are older than or were older than most kids my age as parents. And so they would have parties with all of their teacher friends and professor friends because they were educators. And I would sneak alcohol upstairs into my room at eight years old. And I remember like at some of the parties, I would be allowed to like bring a friend over or something. And I must have been in like second or third grade. And I like filled up like a red solo cup with, I don't even know, some kind of concoction, brought it upstairs to my friend and was like, look, alcohol and like, you know, drank some of it. And then his mom found out and then I let him take the blame for it. I was so embarrassed. Mm -hmm. But like, that's my drinking origin, like eight years old, sneaking alcohol upstairs. I'm curious,
0: what happened in between drinking it at seven and being disgusted and like, sneaking it upstairs at eight? Like, what made you want to try it again?
1: Yeah, I think like, there was definitely some like, trauma stuff from like, outside people that I had experienced, like within that time frame. And something in my brain changed and I was like, okay, I'm an adult now because, you know, people were making comments and other things and like treating me like I was not seven or eight years old.
0: Jesus. Um,
1: That's so fucked up. Yeah.
0: This is another tangent, but, like, people are are talking about, you know, drag queens, like, sexualizing children. And it's, like, dude, straight culture has been doing this since the beginning of time.
1: Yeah, and around that time, too, like, I've kind of connected the start of my eating disorder and my alcoholism and all of that to, like, seven or eight. This is, like, the time where, like, puberty was starting and, like, I started to get a chest and, like the second that happened, it was like, okay, you need to wear a bra. And then like, you can't like go shirtless and hang out with your friends or like, you know, like at the beach or whatever. Um, yep. Like now you're an adult and now you're sexualized. And like, that is it.
0: Yeah, I, ha- I had a very similar experience. And it- it's scary. And I don't know, did you grow up with religion in your life at all?
1: I went to Catholic school. Okay, so bit. that's a yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> but yeah, there's this the extra layer when you do grow up in that kind of environment, not only are you turning and your body is changing, but you have this message that like you need to cover up, or you'll attract the wrong kind of attention, and like it's sinful, but also it's a temple, and it's it's just very confusing. At least it was for me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I,
0: and you know the gender stuff on top of all of that, just feeling like you don't fit.
1: Yeah. And then, like, my body was changing and then I was, like, gaining weight because that's what happens when, like, you are a child and, like, you go through pre-booting. Yeah. Um, but, like, I was getting signals from, you know, like, my mom and other people, like, oh, like, you can't have this dessert or, oh, you can't eat this or, like, you have to eat healthy and you have to be tiny and, you know, it was just, like, lots of messaging around, like, diets and
0: food it's more binaries right it's like good and bad healthy unhealthy mm-hmm. there's no in between yeah so when did the the eating disorder st- start if you could pinpoint it to a time
1: yeah so I feel like I've always had issues with food like I was malnourished in the orphanage like wasn't on the birth charts until I was like a little kid and then like definitely had RFID so I like not food uh intake disorder as a kid like super picky eater we only have like three things and then around six years old um i had a family friend tell me this like in a letter a few years ago saying when you were six your mom asked you uh if you wanted like a piece of cake and i literally said i can't have the cake it will make me fat and then my mom forced me to have it anyways and that's kind of like where it started
0: so in between that moment and when you went to treatment, like how did your substance use and reading disorder escalate?
1: Oof, it You know, it just got really bad. I think everything kind of hit a point. Like when I was 11, I started like using pills here and there and then tried to purge for the first time and it didn't work. And I was like, this is stupid. And then I went into exercise really heavy. That was kind of like my life for a really long time. Um, and I was... I think probably end of eighth grade, early ninth grade was the time where it was I would wake up, get high, go to school, get high, come home, get high, and then like drink myself to sleep every night. Did anyone notice? And like I look back and like, how did I Yeah, how does that happen? Yeah, it's <laughs> a great question. Um, there were definitely like some adults who were concerned and like my friends at the time knew that like I was going through it. Um like self-harm was also a part of my story. Feel like I could just like check off a lot of like the mental health stuff but it all kind of just like came to a point when I was like 18 or 19 I was like maybe I have a problem with drugs but like definitely don't have a problem with alcohol I'm fine um, and I got sober for the first time at 19 and made it like a year and three months and then got into a really not great relationship and relapsed with alcohol and some substances and then didn't come back and get sober until I was 21. Um, so I now have like five and a half years sober.
0: Recovery icon. so. No, seriously. <laughs> One day at a time. F- for fucking real. When, when you got sober the second time, what do you mm-hmm. think was the difference that made it stick that time? Like, how did you get sober, first of all? Like, what kind of support did you have?
1: Okay, so I channel I think of like traditions and certain programs um, definitely used like supportive groups to help get me sober that second time around I like had like a really rough evening um, with my ex-partner at the time that was like a very abusive very like messed up evening and I was very drunk um, and like I posted something on social media like I'm having so much fun and someone that I met at a sober convention reached out and was like, That really sucks and there was something in me that I was like, Yeah, I need help and they sent me the phone number of someone um who had long term sobriety and I called her the next day and was like, Hey, I need help. I can't do this anymore. Like I feel like I'm going to die every second of the day. And she helped me so much through that and that's kind of how i got
0: sober i feel like whenever someone does find a person like that who's willing to take them under their wing and like mentor them like it's frankly a miracle like for people like us i feel like yeah looking back it's like how the fuck am i alive and like i don't know how i managed to just stumble my way into this sobriety thing but like here we are
1: yeah and it's it has not been easy you know it hasn't what (laughs) it's just not the easiest thing in the world I think it was way harder to come back after knowing that like there was a period of time like where I was doing okay and where I wasn't using substances and then like being in the thick of it when my whole world was crashing like I lost everybody because of that relationship you know in that desperation like I had nobody and then that person was like hey I've been there this is my story I want to work with you are you willing and I was like yeah I will do anything. And that's what I did. I followed her suggestions and it kind of went from there.
0: And you found a community, right?
1: Yeah, I found a really great community.
0: Because I remember when we met, you were doing like Zoom meetings, Mm -hmm. like hosting them or something.
1: Yeah, I was going to Zoom meetings like every single day and then like staying on afterwards for fellowship for hours and like that's what i needed to do at the time because like i didn't trust myself like there were nights where i would have to like sit on my hands and be like i am not allowed to move because i am either going to like do something self-destructive or like drink um
0: yeah and and that's not a bad thing like to realize that you have to do that like i think there's a strength to that just yeah. realizing that you're helpless and that you can't do it on your own yeah I remember being like really resistant to those sorts of meetings and you actually got me to like try it out and it was really, really cool. Mm -hmm. And I've gone back to a few more like since we last saw each other in person.
1: Nice. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, like for those listening, like there are so many pathways of recovery, like meetings might work for you, meetings might not, you know, movement might work for you, movement might not attending like sober events might be like the way that you get recovery and that's completely valid
0: too yeah or something might work for you for a while and then all of a sudden it doesn't work anymore like that's fine too you know recovery is the messiest thing ever and anyone who makes it seem otherwise (laughs) like has a filter on definitely i mean it's like you were saying like when you do get sober for instance it life gets harder in many cases like for me, yeah. it just kind of put a magnifying glass to all the things I had been ignoring. And I didn't have life skills to deal with them once I got sober because I had just been like floating for so long in a bubble of my own <laughs> making. So you you, get, you got sober, but your eating disorder was still going on, I'm assuming. It,
1: my eating disorder got way worse. Yeah, that
0: happened to me too. It's, it's very common.
1: Definitely treated one maladaptive coping skill for the other. And there were, like, a few assaults that happened, like, in that time frame. And for me, like, the only way that my brain was, like, we can get through this is through using my eating disorder. And, like, that's what I needed at the time. And I remember, like, my support person saying, like, hey, I think you need, like, treatment. Like, I think you should see, like, a therapist and get, like, a dietitian, And, you know, maybe go to a treatment center because um, you're getting really bad. And, you know, there's nothing that they could do to help. And, like, I took the suggestions and, like, did the things. But I have periods where it's, like, I get really bad and then I, like, recover for a little bit or I go to treatment for a little bit and then I'm okay and then I get bad again. So yeah. I got sober, eating disorder got worse, and then treatment kind of happens a couple years later, residential.
0: Now, it was your first time in res, but had you sought any sort of treatment for your mental health issues before then, like therapy or school guidance counselors?
1: Yeah, I was in therapy. Um, I got placed in therapy when I was 10 years old. The story that I heard was you know, my parents had like a domestic dispute, and then I don't know, someone told them that like I should be in therapy. And so I started therapy when I was 10. And I've seen many different therapists over the years. I still have a therapist now. But I started with therapy and then I did like meetings and stuff. And then I did PHP, which is, I guess, like all day treatment. Um, And then I would come home at night for my eating disorder when I first got sober the second time. That didn't make sense. But the second time I got sober early in sobriety that time, I went to PHP for a few months and then didn't do treatment for probably like two years or so, and my eating disorder got bad again until the point where my team was like, you need to be in residential. And that's where we met.
0: (laughs) Yay! Okay, so now we are in Seattle, in the treatment center. We're talking, we're we're doing art projects together. At what point do we start going to the LGBTQ
1: group? I feel like I wasn't in res for too long i feel like my insurance cut me pretty soon so it must have been within like week two okay week two or three because i think i was only in res for two and a half weeks and then php i was able to do the lgbt group as well
0: yeah that was an amazing group the reason i bring it up is because that that group holds a very special place in my heart Um, because, you know, when I was in treatment, that was when I started exploring my own queer identity and it was really Mm -hmm. scary and I felt like I couldn't even talk about it. And you were one of those people that just made me feel like I was allowed to talk about it and that I should talk about it. And we had a lot of really, really beautiful conversations. Um, and you know, that group sparked a lot of them. I don't know what what was your experience. Because I know you had been, there were a lot of people at that place that weren't as accepting.
1: Yeah, I think for me, once I like realized that that group was a thing and started to hear other people share, I was like, okay, like, I'm in a safe place. And like, everyone who is here is safe to talk to. I really enjoyed like the conversations that we would have, like on the smoke breaks. and mm-hmm. It just like felt so real. And like, yeah, I don't know, I've had other queer people help me through the whole journey. and just being
0: able to be that person for someone else is really powerful. Totally. Yeah, I, I appreciated it so much. And like, I, I think back on them often, because, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's something that I'm still not even comfortable really talking on the, about on the podcast. Like this is maybe like yeah. the second time I've mentioned it, and I still feel like I'm not allowed to. And <sighs> I don't know, in eating disorder treatment spaces, also, you you want them to be safe for everyone, but the reality is that they're not. And I, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that experience.
1: I mean, for me, I have experienced some trauma due to being queer and out uh, in treatment. But I think the most important thing is like to advocate for yourself and be like, hey, this is who I am. These are my pronouns. No ifs, ands, or buts. Like This is... Common decency, like respect who I am. Baseline. Like, if you mess up my pronouns, continue trying. Don't be like, oh, well, in that case, you know, insert pronouns that aren't mine. Yeah. Um, common decency and then like respect and acceptance. Like, I've been in treatment spaces of people who have never known a non-binary person or someone with they, them pronouns. Mm-hmm. And they have, through conversations with them, like worked on changing those views and... Acceptance um, towards me has happened, but I think it's very difficult, specifically in eating disorder treatments, when most are um, catered only towards like female-identifying people, or, like cis white women. That it makes those who aren't in like the general binary really called out and causes harm sometimes.
0: Yeah, I mean, as a cis white woman, like all I see in these spaces are people generally who look like me, and it's. It, it needs to change.
1: Like, I'm white, too, so, like, I do have that privilege. But being a gender nonconforming human, specifically at the treatment center that we went to, not knowing that there was a bathroom that I could use for the first six days of being there. Yeah. You know, it just really messed up. I've been to other treatment residential centers, and I think, like, over the years, like, things have gotten easier in terms of, like, acceptance, but it's still so messy. But like, I've been in treatment where like, my roommate is also non binary. And that's amazing, incredible when that happens. Yeah. So I think it just depends on the treatment center. Like they do give you tools and skills that can really help.
0: Going back to being an advocate for yourself. I think when you are an Mm -hmm. advocate for yourself, like you also become an advocate for people like you, even if they might not be presenting like you, even if they might not feel comfortable speaking out about it, like, there's people like that everywhere. And Mm -hmm. just seeing someone say the things that you feel like you don't have the capacity to say, like that makes a huge impact.
1: Yeah. And like, I've been in situations where I have been the advocate and, you know, then staff get upset with me or, you know, things change like outwardly for everyone else, but then like they're worse towards me. So I think it is just like a very delicate line. Yeah which like it shouldn't be like you should be in a place where you should feel able to like express every part of you and like go through that exploration process.
0: And and advocacy is work, and we're not always in a position to do that work. And like sometimes you you do need to take care of yourself and your needs before you can be an advocate, and that's valid too. Definitely. You no, know? it's it's not yeah. an easy world we live in right now. <laughs> what are some of your fond memories from that treatment stay? Let's have a little palate cleanser. From
1: when we were in treatment together. Yeah.
0: Do you have any like fun memories you want to reminisce about?
1: My favorite memory was when you and I went through every single magazine in the building to collage <laughs> and we covered the entire desk with like magazine cuttings and people were trying to focus in group and we were over there with our scissors kind of, like, cutting out words and like putting them in piles. Yes, I
0: bought a whole like folder system on Amazon so I could organize my clippings. Mm-hmm. And I still do that as I speak. I have a cubby system in front of me full of magazine clippings. It's
1: great. Yeah. I think that was one of my favorite moments. And then, like, in the evenings, sometimes we'd play, like, cards or, like, Among Us.
0: Um... Oh, I learned how to play Among Us there. Yeah. I felt like such an old person.
1: <laughs> I remember. <laughs>
0: I have not played it since.
1: I don't think I have either. Does
0: anybody? I feel like it was one of those fads. Now I sound like an old person.
1: I've been having lots of moments with my current job where I feel like I'm very old. Here's a question for you. Please. When you were in school as a kid, did you have to like put um, paper bags over your books, like your school books? Well, I was homeschooled. So oh, right. I remember. <laughs> so I don't,
0: I don't know. I'm sorry.
1: but wait, no, it's okay. Wh- why would you put paper bags over your books? Yeah, so I'm learning and maybe it was just like a Catholic school thing, but I asked like four of my coworkers yesterday and they all looked at me like I was foreign and I was like, okay, <laughs> cool thanks and then i spoke to like two people who were close to my age and they were like oh yeah i remember that like you would like draw on like the paper bag over the book and that was just like what you did to protect the books in school
0: oh like you were making your own book jacket kind of yeah oh that's rad i kind of want to do that now no, why not <laughs> why <back? laughs> the fuck not everything is an art project if you try hard enough Mm-hmm. What were you even talking about feeling old feeling old? Yes. Um, so you've been up to a lot of shit since I last saw you.
1: Oh, yeah, it's been a whirlwind. So when did
0: you leave treatment? I know that that in and of itself was a really rough time. What was your headspace like when when you left?
1: I think I was in like a decent headspace, like PHP really helped. Um, until you know insurance cut and then I was like out and alone in the world but I was able to do some like movement exposures and like start skating again and that was really helpful so like skating combined with like artwork at that time really helped with my recovery.
0: You keep talking about exposures and I I know what it is but for the listeners could you just explain like what that is and why it's been
1: helpful for you? Do you want to try to explain
0: it? Movement, for instance, is something that people with eating disorders abuse, you know, exercising and that sort of thing. Yeah. And, you know, in recovery, some people aren't able to just jump right back into exercise. Like even just something as simple as going on a walk, like that would be almost like an alcoholic, you know, going to the beer aisle of a grocery store. But everyone has to like move. And so exposure is when like you... Start learning how to do those things again in a healthy way by easing yourself into it.
1: That was a great definition. And then like in PHP, I was able to have like the support of a team to like help monitor or like to keep me accountable for like movement exposures. So what would that look like for you? Um I think like at that time it was like you're allowed to go skating in this, you know, insert time frame here and then journal before, journal after and then we're going to check in in session and like see what emotions came up or like, what urges came up and then kind of like work through that.
0: Honestly, as a practice, I think more people should do that. Like when it comes to activities we do, I think like one thing they teach you in treatment is to just obsessively reflect on things. And Mm -hmm. I I, I don't know, I think I've carried that forward with me a lot in my daily life. And I think more people should do it just checking in with yourself, like before, during and after you do something
1: when there's no harm in self reflection.
0: I mean, you can self reflect to death.
1: Maybe don't do that. (laughs) What was I about to say? Oh, yeah, like even through like those exposures, and like doing more exposures over time, like, I realized that actually like roller derby was a behavior for me and I didn't even realize that because someone asked me the question, would you still skate if you knew that it would not change the way you look? And it was so powerful. And I think my answer was I wouldn't do it at the level of skill that I was at. I wouldn't be as competitive. Like I would do it for fun. Absolutely. But like the level that I was doing was not healthy and I didn't realize it until like last year
0: damn so when you realized it were you like i have to stop this now
1: it's been a weird journey right now i'm on leave from derby but i tried to go back to it in residential or no in php and at first they were like yeah you can absolutely go play roller derby join the team you know like you're completing your meal plan you're doing all the things go for it but the thing that was harmful was they never told me No, or like to stop when they thought that it wasn't in that good range anymore. They were just like, I don't know, it's not really recommended. And I was like, okay, but like, should I not be doing this? And they're like, no, I think you're okay. And then finding out like somehow it transformed into a behavior again without the support was really frustrating and harmful.
0: Do you often wish that someone would tell you like what to do just in life?
1: I feel like it would definitely be easier than, like, just running with whatever my brain is telling me sometimes. But, like, the whole figuring out process is part of the adventure.
0: Totally. You mentioned being a people pleaser earlier, and that's what made me think of it. It's like, I don't know, sometimes we... Don't check in with ourselves before we check in with other people, like especially in treatment settings where, you know, you want to trust your providers. And sometimes okay. I think we get overly dependent on the opinions of other people. And so we, we hold off making decisions. Yeah. Especially in early recovery or like a wobbly mm-hmm. baby horse, like you don't know what to do.
1: Yeah. I mean, in, in those time frames, like it's really helpful for people to be like, Hey, this is like what's worked for me or this is what I'm suggesting. But yeah, I've recently realized that like, I have like over the past few years become like pretty dependent on my treatment team as a whole. I've been going through insurance issues, so every single one of my providers is now out of pocket and it makes me very upset. But in that realization, I was like, "Hold on, like I have to recover for myself. Like I can't do this for anyone else. Like at the end of the day, like I have myself and then you know the people who I choose to surround myself with." But it kind of like switched my brain and my thinking and from that point i was kind of like what does little teddy like What does my inner child need right now um and then what can i do to like provide for them and like get through the next whatever messy period of time because i'm going to be seeing my team way less than what i was comfortable with because it was like familiar you know yeah. that stability that i had every week and now that it's gone i'm like "Ooh, it's weird but it's like forcing me to try all these new things and like new coping skills. and Being
0: an adult yeah. is hard, especially when, you know, you're having to kind of reparent yourself, take care of your inner child. I mean, I've talked about inner child work a little bit on this podcast. Like I personally find it really helpful because like I feel like I didn't have a childhood and maybe you can relate. Yeah. And so it's a very vulnerable place to be, which is like being mm-hmm. a child you know, like yeah. literally the definition of vulnerable. But that's what we need yeah. to move forward and become an adult, which is
1: very confusing. Yeah.
0: So you got out of treatment in Seattle. Where did you go after that?
1: I'm pretty sure that when I left treatment that time with you, I was then homeless and I didn't have anywhere to go. That's So right. I went on like a two week Road trip, and I was like, This is gonna be great, this is adventure, and that was kind of my brain reframing, I'm homeless, I'm screwed to okay, let's make this like fun. And I went to like twelve national parks and did all the things. I remember that
0: you had a bunch of arguments with your team about this plan
1: absolutely, yeah, and I was like, well, if you can't support me or if you can't get insurance to let me stay, like this is my only option. like this is what I have again, advocating for yourself. yes. There was lots of advocating and yeah. But yeah, so I'm pretty sure that was when I went on my wild adventure. Otherwise, that was the treatment time after. Everything kind of blurs together.
0: Do you remember um, how your mental health was through those weeks? Like how your recovery was going?
1: Yeah, it was a struggle. Like the first few weeks, I was like really adamant of like, okay, this is what I have to do. This is how I can complete my meal plan. And this is how I can do all of the things but then I went back to, yeah, that's what happened. I went back to my really toxic job afterwards. I did two weeks on the road and then I got called in and they were like, hey, can you come to work earlier than, you know, your medical leave? And I said, sure, I need the money. And then that sent me into like another spiral. And then in August of that year, I was back in residential.
0: So what was that time like compared to the time when we met?
1: I think it was like the worst that I had ever Gotten like in my story, like my treatment team was like, You need to be in the hospital, but because COVID was happening, like there were no spots. Um, so then they were like, Okay, let's try for residential. And so, whichever one opens up a spot, that's where you're going. Like, I didn't really have a choice. Like, I did, but like it definitely didn't feel like I did um, mm. in the moment. And I ended up in residential, and it was incredible and like helped. And then I I think I ended up in open to residential a few times in the past three or four years. Hey, nothing wrong with that. Yeah. That might have been when I went to the Grand Canyon and like lived there for a little bit.
0: Okay, so you need to tell that story. Cause I have not really heard about this. I, I've been following you on social media and stuff, but
1: And so those of you listening, if you go to my blog, you'll have the actual timeline because I'm fifty fifty if this timeline is accurate.
0: Dude, it's okay. Um, I have like caught myself just spouting blatant misinformation about my past on the podcast because I can't remember shit.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm accurate that the events have happened, but the timeline of when specifically is a little blurry. But um, yeah, so I ended up leaving treatment because I got a job at the Grand Canyon and it was going to be great and I was going to love it. And that was what I thought. And then I got there and it was beautiful. I got to see the sunrise and sunset almost every day. And that was fun. And I got to like live in like a little dorm area, which was fun. But I worked so much that I didn't really have time to like explore. And I felt so burnt out. I was doing retail for the first time in my life. And it was like, you know, coming to be Christmas season. So it was very busy. Like the park was getting so many people every day in the gift shop where I worked. And after like two, three months I was like, I can't do this anymore. And my treatment team I was seeing virtually kind of And they were like, you're getting bad again. Like, you have to stop this job. And at that point, I was like, I don't have anywhere else to go. Like, what do I do? And I went home to New York for one and a half weeks. And in that one and a half weeks, I started to purge for the first time Mm -hmm. um, in my eating disorder journey. And my treatment team was like, you need to be hospitalized, like, now. And I was like, I'm in New York. And so I road trips from New York to Oregon. Um, oh my God. And like, it was so dangerous. The fact that I survived was great. Like I would have my dietitian <laughs> call me and being like, okay, now it's time to like have your supplement drink. And like, this is your accountability. And this is the only way it's gonna work. Um, and so I road tripped across the country. And then I was back in treatment in January.
0: Do you feel like you were kind of going through it on autopilot at that point? Like, how did you do that in, in your current, like, mental state?
1: I I don't know. All I knew was, like, I cannot be in New York and I have to get out of here and, like, I have to go to treatment because, like, I had done so much work in August. And then even in January when we met, like, the year prior that I was, like, I, I need help. Like, I knew that I needed help. And that was when I started writing my blog on my, like, adventures. of I think that might have been, like, one of my first posts. I, like, created a newsletter And it was all about my road trip and how I like almost escaped death twice because like a truck like sighted my car on the trip and then another truck was going one way down the opposite way where I was and like just missed me. And it was a crazy adventure or like a wild adventure.
0: What's your blog called for those who want to look it up?
1: It is teddy, T-E-D-D-Y, hikes, H-I-K-E-S dot com.
0: Perfect. All right, plug over. We can move on.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that's when I started my blog. And then from there, everything's kind of like my treatment journey um, sporadically is written all over. At first, I thought it was going to be like a travel blog, um, but then it kind of turned into more of a mental health blog where I talk about like my gender identity and like my sobriety and my eating disorder recovery and my relapses and all of that. Yeah, so I ended up in treatment and then got another job and then worked myself way too hard and then ended up in treatment again and got a new job and this is where I'm at now.
0: Do you like it? Do do you feel like you could be here a while, the job?
1: Um, I don't know yet.
0: I should rephrase that. Do you feel like being at your current job is allowing you to work on your mental health?
1: Come back to me on that question. Okay, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) Because... When I was originally hired, I was hired for a different position and like we're trying to open up a like sober community kind of clubhouse for teenagers. What? That sounds incredible. Yeah, it's it's so fun. But the center was supposed to be open in March and it's still not open yet. So if You do the math. I've been working here for a couple of months now, but I recently last week switched jobs um, so I'm doing all of the graphic design stuff and it reminds me every single time of like your door and treatment where it was like covered with all the little things that you Oh,
0: I'm smiling so hard right now. You can't see it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and like, I still have the little quotes that like you made graphic design for me. Um, but yeah, so I'm doing all of the graphics, all of the social media, creating all of the events and like we're supposed to open in a few weeks. So
0: Exciting! I'm. I love that for you, and it's so cool to see you. Like, in spite of all the shitty stuff you've been going through, to just like keep trying to give back to others, and yeah, yeah follow your your passion, whatever that means. Just doing the things. How is your recovery going right now with with the substances and that eating disorder?
1: Yeah, substances. I still have like five and a half years. Um, sober. There have been like one or two moments recently where I've like, ooh, maybe like a drink sounds good. And then I'm like, absolutely not. That could be like the worst decision ever.
0: Oh my God. It's so hard. It's like you think that you're out of the woods after you've reached a certain Mm -hmm. point. And and that's why like earlier when you told me how long you'd been sober and then you said it hasn't been easy. Like I wanted to come back to that because I think especially after you hit like the five-year mark, it's really easy to just like people don't ask about how you're doing as much, like they kind of assume that you're safe, but it is an everyday thing. And so I'm curious, like you're sober a little longer than I am. And I'm just curious what that has looked like for you past the five year mark.
1: Yeah, it's definitely been intense. I think when I got sober, my most recent time, I kind of told myself, told myself a lot of things at that year, I was like, if I make it five years without a drink, That I'm not an alcoholic. I'm fine. I can do this. I can try again. And I also told myself that I was never going to make it past 27 or never going to make it to my 27th birthday. And that happened. December was, you know, my five year mark. And then my birthday was in February. So it all kind of like collectively happened at the same time. And it's just been a weird experience, I think. Like sobriety is something that I have to like work on every single day. And now that I'm in like, the substance use field again, like, working in this field again, I feel like there's even more pressure to, like, continue to stay sober, or, like, more accountability. Um, Which can be a good thing. And sometimes, yes. You know, it obviously. It can totally be a good thing. But sometimes it makes me more anxious. I'm like, ooh. There's more pressure. Scary. Yeah, hashtag no pressure. <laughs> um, like, if you relapse, you don't have a job, it's fine. But then, in reality, like, if I were to relapse, like, I would lose everything. So,
0: that is the reality. And it's, it's a reality that we don't really want to accept. But also, like, sometimes that acceptance is the only reason we stay sober and just knowing that we can lose everything. Yeah. Uh, And not to say that, like, there's a lot of people out there who are abusing substances and dealing with addiction, and they don't have as much on the line. And like, that's valid, too. Like, I was able to coast by for years, whether it was like my privilege, or just like being really good at hiding things, or, Mm -hmm. you know, being a people pleaser like i worked super hard throughout my whole addiction and like not many people yeah. had an idea i was like it's crazy totally you were talking about your 27th birthday mm-hmm. um i don't know if i ever told you but i had planned to kill myself on my 27th birthday and um that was when i was a full blown alcoholic as well mm-hmm. and so like i got sober from alcohol right before my 27th birthday and so that feeling you describe of weird, the word you used was weird. And like, it's so true. It's like, okay, what now? Like, I guess I'm happy to be here. But what now?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: I recently talked on my most recent episode about my four year soberversary from alcohol and like feeling like a fraud. I I still use some substances. And I feel a lot of guilt about that. And like, I preach harm reduction from the mountaintops. But when it comes to myself, I do feel like a fraud. And I had a listener send in a voicemail, just basically telling me how valid I am and how much hard work I've done. And I wanted to spread that sentiment to you. Because I feel like, from my perspective, you've done an incredible amount of work and have struggled a lot and you're here and that's a huge accomplishment. But also I feel like something people do when you have been in recovery for a while is they lavish praise on you and they like make you feel really awkward and a lot of pressure. And I don't want to do that. But I just want to validate the shit out of you.
1: Thanks. And same, like four years like without alcohol, like that's huge. I, I think like the longer that I have sober, I'm like... You know, in terms of the calm reduction, I think that's incredible. You don't have to do it all at once. You don't even have to do it all ever. You know, if that's part of your journey, like just making steps to like become your most authentic self or like who you wish that like you would be is mm-hmm. huge.
0: Yeah, you can't do it all at once. I, I was on Facebook yeah. of all places and this morning I came across a really insightful comment, which was everything in moderation is still everything. Mm-hmm. Like, you're not yeah. supposed to, you're, you can't do everything. Even if you try to do it all in moderation, like you still can't do it all. And so I think that applies to recovery as well. Like I think, especially when we have a lot of like poly addictions and like multiple disorders, it's, it's sometimes mm-hmm. we feel like we do have to focus on everything at once. Do you feel like you've tried to do that in the past slash are still doing that?
1: Absolutely. I feel like too, I just like wish I could control everything that's happening. That'd be nice. I just realized like that is not possible. And the more that I try to like control things, the more I realize that like, I absolutely cannot control anything.
0: So how how the fuck have you been dealing with that lately? What's been helping you these days?
1: I mean, I think helping others and like stepping outside of myself has been really helpful. And like reaching out to people who are struggling or, you know, other sober folks um, and being like, hey, how are you doing today? Um, cause I know for me that like I can get stuck into my head very quickly and then just spiral. But when I'm helping others or like when I'm checking in with other people, I feel more connected and more grounded.
0: And at the same time, I think it's, it's easy to pour yourself into other people so much that you lose track of yourself. Mm-hmm. Like I have used other people's problems as sort of like a distraction sometimes from the stuff that I know I should be working on? Have you had anything like that pop up?
1: Oh, absolutely. But I think I'm kind of at the point where I'm like, slowly adding things that like bring me joy. And like, I've recently got an art studio. I don't know if we had a conversation about that. So I've been doing a lot of like artsy stuff recently, and just doing what I can to prioritize my younger self and like my healing and then through that I've been able to help others and like work with others and that helps me grow too and like find my growth edges
0: just like becoming a well-rounded person like who'd have thought it's
1: so weird it's so weird i i think of
0: you even now like, as one of the pe- if not the person who got me back into art after so many years of just neglecting that part of my identity and it is a huge part of my recovery. And it just makes me so happy to hear that you are still doing that.
1: Yeah, I love it. I think I've definitely had moments where I just like stop doing it. And usually in those moments, it's where I'm like, so deep in my eating disorder, like, so into like mental health stuff, that like, I forget, like, what's important. And like, what makes me feel grounded, um, or connected to like, my authenticity.
0: Well, yeah. And your authentic self is someone who is creative and who creates, you know, and mm-hmm. and you don't have to be making art to be an artist. That is something that I ha- I'm still trying to force myself to realize <laughs> because, mm-hmm. you know, as, as if you deal with mental health issues especially, you can't always do that. Yeah. Hot take. <laughs> <laughs> so, it is Pride month and I wanted to ask you like how your gender identity, like where you are right now with that. And like, also, what are you most proud of right now? I guess I kind of crammed two questions in one.
1: Okay, so what am I most proud of in terms of myself and then where I'm at gender wise? Yeah, like,
0: as you've been dealing with this recovery stuff, how have you been true to your authentic self? And like how... Have you grown in the way that you understand your gender identity and the way that you express that?
1: Yeah, those are great questions. Um, And part of me was hesitant that you were going to bring this question up, but I feel like it's necessary to talk about. I wrote myself a little note and it was like, be nice and be real Um, (laughs) for (laughs) for today's session. Only for today. Only for today. That's all we have is today. Yeah, I think in terms of gender identity and expression, um, I did a lot of healing work. The second time I was in residential, um, I had a therapist who was queer, non-binary, and they really helped me through a lot of that and just like processing moments of my life where like gender influences from others or society really like impacted me. Both like negatively and positively, Um, and just like being able to walk through and be like, okay, at this point in my life, you know, I was getting this messaging because I wanted to like wear like pants or something versus like I wanted to cut my hair or, you know, all of these things. But more recently, I have started testosterone. So, yay, Universe. Yay, Yay. everybody listening. Um, (laughs) I'm officially out. Woo! Woo. Um, On the world's most popular podcast. (laughs) It truly feels like it. Every time I listen to your podcast, I'm like, wow, there's so many cool humans, so many people listening, Um, which is why I was nervous to pop on here.
0: Well, I know that you're nervous, and I just want to pause in the middle of this moment to say that I, again, that I, I really, really appreciate you showing up and doing this. Like, I can. I can hear how nervous you are. I'm nervous. You know, I, I appreciate the fuck out of everyone who is willing to come on here and be vulnerable. But, like, I know that it's not easy. And I really, really appreciate it. And I know the listeners will appreciate it, too.
1: It's a safe space. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've always felt like a safe person to talk to about all of this, too. So that's really helpful. Um, but, yeah, in terms of gender stuff, I still identify as non-binary. But more I don't know how to ever explain it, but I guess it doesn't really need an explanation. Yeah. But, like, when I think of my inner child, I think of a boy, and that was something that, like, I probably, like, deep, 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 deep down knew, but it wasn't until recently I was uh, having a conversation with one of my close friends, and he basically said, your transness is translating into your eating disorder. And if you don't come out and, like, start talking and, like, being vulnerable about, like, how you truly feel, either you're going to die or, like, your eating disorder is just going to make you completely miserable or you're going to drink or whatever. And it was kind of in that moment where I was like, oh, shit, like, you're not wrong. Um, And I made the decision to, like, start testosterone to, like, give me a more, like, masculine look. So, like, misgendering might happen less. But... Also, like deep down, like I'm a person and life can be intense, especially for trans people. Um, And it's scary right
0: now, especially.
1: It's so scary and heartbreaking. But I know that, like, there might be a younger kid who's like, Hey, you know, that's how I feel. I didn't know that there were names or that you could do this or that you could, like, truly be your authentic self. And so, like, that's why I'm doing this. And, like, I'm so grateful that I have other. Queer and trans people in my life have been that person for me. That's
0: so beautiful. Um, That's
1: a lot to unpack. And
0: if you don't mind, I want to revisit what your friend said, which was your transness is translating into your eating disorder. Can you say, like, Mm -hmm. what he meant by that or, like, what you took that to mean?
1: Yeah. um, I'm pretty sure he was saying that, like, my fear of opening up and being honest about my true self was killing me. And, like, there is such like an accepting community out there and like there are people who are going to love me unconditionally but like i have to like be willing to face the fear and like feel all of the scary feelings that are coming up and like if i don't do that or if i can't do that then i could die you know and i could also die being out so like it's kind of it's weird
0: yeah but here's the thing like we are all going to die One way or another, sooner rather than or later, you know, we're all going to die. And when I think about that, now that I'm no longer in a place where I want to die 24 seven, and now that I'm in a place where I'm actually, I'm looking at the future, and I'm like, Oh, shit, I don't know what I'm going to do. I didn't plan to have the future. It's like, okay, well, I guess now that I'm going to be in the future, I want to be my authentic self, like with the time that I have left, whatever that looks like, I don't want to waste any more time. It's going to be hard. It's going to suck. I'm probably going to lose a lot. But think of all that you're going to gain.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And also like, making this decision, I already feel way better than I ever could have possibly imagined. Like, I don't feel like I'm being like a fake or like inauthentic or you know hiding myself anymore like i can just show up and be like hey this is me if you like it great if you don't then cool
0: and it's it's interesting to hear you say that you're doing that now because i i think of you as someone who's always done that like you've always showed up and you do not settle with who you are in the moment you're always looking for ways to learn about yourself and Keep growing, and that often means scary things.
1: Yeah, everything is like fluid and changing, and like there's no such thing as perfect. I think that's been a really good message that I've been hearing lately, or that's been connecting more lately for me.
0: We talked a lot about labels when we were in treatment together mm-hmm. um, because, like, I have always been really intimidated by labels, feeling like I have to assign myself a label, and if I don't, then I don't belong. At the table, I just rhymed without meaning to. I hate myself, um, <laughs> <laughs> but like when you say like life is fluid, like that applies to labels too. Like fluid, and you have the power to change whenever you want. And I think labels can be really validating. They can open you up to communities that you never had access to before, and you know they can also be restricting, of course. But I, I think it's so beautiful that like you've continued to evolve, and it's awesome.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's been so great to see like your growth process, especially like listening to your podcast, like I get so excited um, to like hear all of your updates about your life and just like your healing journey.
0: I I try. Hopefully there will be more updates in the future. It's been kind of spotty lately. But you know, I've been trying to live in the moment. And I have gotten really comfortable in the online mental health space, you know, and I, I realized that talking about Mental health on the podcast was no longer enough. Like I needed to go out and work on myself in other ways, and and that's been really challenging. And after doing that, I, I just haven't had the energy to do the podcast. But I'm not sorry about it. You know,
1: it's all part of the journey. Yeah, the journey. The journey.
0: <laughs> the journey. What is your what What's your journey? What are you looking forward to these days?
1: Ooh, Even for that's the next week? A great question. <laughs> For the next week my goal is to like take a day off from work and just be in the moment be present do things that make me happy whether that's like be out in nature or doing some art stuff it's my goal for this week and then I think just like overall just reminding myself like I came up with this cute little quote probably like a year or two ago that is um, to be authentic is to live and just like reminding myself that like my authenticity, is, like, a core value of mine, and just, like, asking myself, like, what am I doing to, like, get closer to, like, my true self, or, like, to heal my inner child, or my inner teenager?
0: We're doing it. I mean, we are just just talking about it now. Like, this is it's not easy, but you just exude authenticity. And I I love to be here for it.
1: It's it's good. Thanks for, like, providing a safe space. And of course, your incredible self. Where
0: can people find you? I mean, you already dropped your blog.
1: That works. And then most of my social media handles are just Teddy, T-E-D-D-Y hikes, H-I-K-E-S. Um, so I'm on Instagram. I'm on TikTok. Um, I don't really post much on there anymore. And I have my blog, which I haven't posted in about a month. But if you want to read along all my journey and all of my posts and stuff, feel free. Awesome. Before we say goodbye, is there
0: anything else you want to say or anything else you want to cover?
1: I think just like to anyone struggling, just remembering that like everything is temporary and like it passes and like reach out to those who want what's best for you. And like those are your people. Amen.
0: Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. This has been amazing. I love hearing your voice. And I wish you well on your journey. And I'm so excited to follow along.
1: Yes. So excited to follow along your journey as well. Love you. Love you. Bye. (laughs) Bye.